Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. So welcome, Carol. It is fantastic to have you here with us today talking about emotional resilience. Would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your history and I guess why you're here talking to us? Yeah, so I am a former probation officer and I joined the probation service many years ago in 2003 as a very young 25-year-old. I mean, I know you wouldn't believe it's looking at me now, but yes, I am. <laughs> I am in my 40s. I thought I was going to change the world and I thought everybody on my caseload would divert from crime and I'd just be so good at it. And two years later, after very intensive training, I realised how difficult it was to support people to make changes. So I stuck with it for another, well, until 2019. So I stuck with it another 15, 16, 17 years. But I still wanted to help people and make that change. And eventually it just got to the stage where I realised that for my own mental well-being, I had to get out of the probation service. So before the probation service, I'd really been into acting. And because of things that had happened to me and trauma, I really wanted to help people who were committing crime because of what had happened to me. So that's one of the reasons why I joined the probation service. And like I said, I was quite naive that I could change the world, which I think is a nice quality, really, because <laughs> it did mean I lasted a bit longer than some. So during the probation service, and this is part of my ADHD brain, I couldn't sit in one role longer than three years. Luckily for me, the probation service had secondments for three years. So <laughs> as soon as the three years were up, I was, what's next, what's next? So my time in the probation service involved me working at Newhall Prison for three years on the youth offending ward. So basically working with 17-year-old girls. I spent three years as a practice tutor assessor, so training up the trainee probation officers. I spent two years as a practice manager on the prison ward just by fluke. I didn't even want it. My manager went on maternity leave. And I didn't want it. I thought, oh, no, this is too, I don't want it. And I was sweet talked into it by the governor and the yacht manager out in the community. So I did that for a couple of years. I worked for the CRCs for a couple of years, which your listeners might know that the probation community, service. just in case anybody <laughs> doesn't know, the probation service did go through a thing called transforming rehabilitation, where elements were privatised and community rehabilitation companies like Sodexo and InterServe took responsibility for some of the delivery of services. And so when Carol refers to CRCs, that's what she's referring to. And I can certainly tell by her face and I know from, <laughs> from how I feel about that whole process that actually um, we both have some beliefs actually that's really impacted people's emotional resilience and ability to undertake their roles. But we'll stick with you for a moment, Carol, because <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a can of worms. I wonder whether... Um... <laughs> Let's not go there. But yes. So to sum up, because I'm going on, I've worked for the probation service for age for like most of my adult life. And I joined because I genuinely believe, I still believe people can change and that people need support and help to make them changes. That's why I joined the probation service. I was also an actress as well. I don't know if you want me to talk about that, Tammy, but yes, I like to keep learning and keep busy. Yeah, and I can imagine actually some of your acting skills would have paid dividends in your role within probation as well, because it is, you're meeting different people all of the time, professionally and service users as well. And actually having those skills to be able to read body language and interact in different ways and meet people where they're at. And you know, exactly, yeah. I know a few people who have been actors previously and then oh, come yeah. into work in a sector with people of complex needs. Yeah. And they do find that they use their acting toolbox quite regularly. 
Absolutely. One of the greatest things of being an actor is how non-judgmental it makes you because when you're approaching a role and you're working out why that character has done what they've done, it's exactly the same with offenders. Why did that person choose to do that and not that? And coming from the point of view of compassion, sort of you're really trying to understand why somebody would do what they've done from a place of compassion rather than from a place of judgment. And definitely my acting helped me with that, as well as being able to just mask how I'm feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Which we'll talk about that a bit, because that did get me, because masking is good, but it brings its own problems when it comes to being resilient. Yeah. Well, let's park that for a moment and just kind of go back to the fact that you have had a very busy career, but very connected to the front line and very connected to helping people make change. Within all of that, I know I invited you here as much as I'm, there's so much actually I'd quite like to talk to you about. And so (laughs) I might just have to invite you back again. But today we're going to talk a little bit about emotional resilience. Mm. I guess one of the things that I wonder just before we get into the meat of it really is, What does the term emotional resilience actually mean to you? When we're having this conversation, what are we talking about from your perspective? The term emotional resilience, it's very useful as a term of reference. We all know what we're talking about. And I agree that individuals and workers must have that level of emotional resilience. And what it means to me is being able to know yourself and being able to advocate for yourself and being able to ask for help. So for me, emotional resilience is that individual feeling like that. It only works when you are in a culture and a team where that is encouraged. So emotional resilience is the baseline. If you're then in a situation where it's not encouraged for you to say to your line manager, I'm not coping, or it's not encouraged for you to say to your line manager, I cannot work with this person because of X, Y, and Z, And it's not encouraged for you to say, I'm stressed without worrying that that's going to have long term impact on your sickness record or HR. Then the term emotional resilience to me is pointless because that individual will never feel comfortable opening up. And that's a problem within management and structural issues of the organization. But on an individual level, your emotional resilience is you saying, I need help with X, Y and Z. I need you to take, and I'm thinking as a probation officer here, I need you to take, I've got a caseload of 60, I need you to take some people off me for me to cope. I need support. And yeah, just having that self-awareness and noticing in yourself when you're starting to get stressed, to notice in the warning signs and being able to do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with both of those. The, the culture around you, the culture that you work within is so important with regards to emotional resilience, because what we're talking about there is actually the support of your colleagues and your teams to help you, I guess, be the best that you can be. Yeah, It's interesting because quite often people hear the term emotional resilience and when they're connecting it to themselves personally, some people wrongly, in my opinion, infer from emotional resilience that that means that you should be able to cope with anything and that you are you've got this hard shell which means you're impenetrable and I love the fact that actually your explanation of emotional resilience is really similar to mine in the sense of it's actually recognizing the things that you do struggle with and asking for support in those Mm -hmm. and like you gave an example there from within the probation service. And I know, for instance, when I worked at Reshape, and that's a charity that was working to prevent sexual harm, and we had volunteers who worked with people who were at risk of causing further sexual offences. And when we recruited the volunteers, the coordinators would always talk to them about actually, are there any people or offences that you're not comfortable working with and why? And how can we support and help you not to work with that group of people or that cohort or such like from that recognition perspective of the fact that it might trigger you you might have your own background for a variety of reasons you might have made that decision that actually you can't emotionally cope with some of that information yeah and And knowing that that's okay as well absolutely it's almost like well why have you gone into that job if you can't do everything And that's the wrong attitude to having you losing organisations, losing good workers by not adapting to the strengths of their workers. Yeah. Why wouldn't you use the strengths of your workers? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's a real strength to be able to recognise that. And certainly as I'm getting older, I'm getting better at that. I think we'll learn about ourselves as we go through our lives. But there's been points in my life that I look back and reflect on now where I've changed career. I remember I worked delivering and working with people who were convicted of sexual offences. And then I fell pregnant and we were just embarking on starting a family. And actually, at the time, I might not have recognised it for this, but I very soon after falling pregnant, moved roles and started working in homelessness. And when I look back, I can see that that absolutely was me protecting myself. I might not have at that point specifically thought I'm doing this because of this. Yeah, exactly. But it was within that. And looking back, I can see that as a huge strength. Yeah, it is a huge strength and again, should be encouraged in teams. So when people put their hands up saying, you know, I don't want to work with domestic violence perpetrators, it's triggering me. Then instead of saying, get on with it, you've been trained, (laughs) actually listening to that person and not giving them domestic violence cases. Because it's not fair on the person. It's not fair on anybody. No, the service user is not going to get the what they need as well. No. I've certainly heard that before within criminal justice services, but not only criminal justice services, wider than that, where people have just said, get on with it. You've been trained and it's part of the job. Is that something that you experienced in probation? Yeah, absolutely. And a culture of, well, you know, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen sort of thing, that you knew what you were signing up for. So it's tough, you know, tough poo. You have to work with X, Y and Z. You know, and I don't want to say that all of my time in probation was like that because it wasn't. There was certainly this culture in certain teams from managers and practitioners that you shouldn't really complain. and You should just get on and do it. And now I'm out of it. I look back and think, where's the compassion? Where's the compassion for the staff and the service users? Where's the recognition that the staff members are the most powerful resource you've got? Yeah. You know, we should be putting everything into looking after yeah. our teams, yeah. our practitioners, because they're the ones that in a really privileged position, they can absolutely help people to yeah. transform their lives all day, every day. Yeah. But as sometimes long as their cup is full and if their cup's empty, abs- yeah, you, you're not helping anybody, you know. Yeah. Uh, really and that's is. a little bit why I explained about the CRC and you just grimaced because I know <laughs> that that was. <laughs> I know that that specifically was a time where I was on the periphery of the criminal justice service and I saw so many amazing people, absolutely amazing values led people that were changing lives, leaving in droves because actually their emotional resilience took a battering from all of the political landscape, from the changing expectations, from the changing of employers, you know, all of that noise around doing a good job, the pressure that came at them from all different angles, lowered their emotional resilience and lowered their ability to do their job effectively. And some of them, those I would probably say with the luxury of choice, actually made an active decision to step away. Now, interestingly, we all know the journey of the probation service that we've gone a little bit full circle Mm -hmm. and transforming rehabilitation part two is um, currently happening with the recognition that possibly if certain people have been listened to at the beginning, some of this could have been avoided, like the practitioners on the ground. So frustrating. Yeah, everybody was up in arms about it, saying you cannot make money for shareholders out of people committing crime. You can't hold probation workers to ransom saying, oh, you can't recall that person to prison because we'll go over our quota for how many people we've recalled this month. I mean, the stress that that caused people, because we're not here to make money for shareholders as probation officers. You're there to protect. Protect and serve to an extent. (laughs) If you're concerned that that person is going to cause significant harm, your professional judgment should be not put in doubt by money. Yeah, monitoring and expectations and yeah. I think it's potentially a whole of a podcast where we could absolutely discuss in detail the pros and cons because there certainly were some things that the sector learned without a doubt within this whole process. But Mm -hmm. equally, I think the reducing rehabilitation element has come full circle. Um, Hopefully we'll start seeing some positive changes. and Actual innovation taking place rather than all (laughs) this red tape. Yeah. yeah. 
Luckily, some very good people did already work for some of those CRCs and some very good people from probation did start working for them as well. So some excellent work did happen, but I think the influence and I guess the impact on probation officers that were trying to do their job and didn't want to go through this whole bureaucratic process of changing jobs, changing employers, changing expectations, increasing caseloads, etc., added a lot of pressure, didn't it? It really did. And it's already a pressurised job. And, you know, I don't want to be one of those former probation officers saying in the good old days, because I don't look at it all with rose-tinted glasses at all. The stress went through the roof when the split happened for everybody. So not only have you got the normal day-to-day stresses of the job, you've got brand new stresses like the change in IT not being handled properly. And when you need to get on the computer, yeah, yeah, you've got somebody coming in on duty. You don't even know who they are. You need to check what that risk is. You need to check, can I even go in a room with them? And like basic things were getting missed. It felt like nobody was listening to the people on the ground. Nobody was listening to the coal face. It felt like nobody really understood what we did. And that's the trouble with probation. We do really well, but don't bang on about it. So nobody really actually knew <laughs> all the good work that we did or how we worked came in, changed everything that just sent people's stress levels through the roof, myself included. Tell us a little bit then, Carol, because I know that we spoke prior to the podcast and you've kind of got your own story, really, with regards to emotional resilience and then burnout and where you're where you're at now and how you've got yourself there, haven't you? Yeah. So as I said, it's a pressurised job. You had high pressured days. It's not like it went from a walk in the park to <laughs> this awful stress. What happened for me, it happened quite quite slowly. It was quite insidious and it sort of crept up on me. And before I knew it, I was in a very dark place. So it started with just my level of compassion just went, it just disappeared. Just to me, I was properly like, I cannot cope with anything anymore. I almost like don't care that X, Y, and Z's happened. Please don't overwhelm me anymore because my stress was up here. I just couldn't cope. I was getting no support. And to be fair, I'd not asked for any support. And it was affecting my home life. So I was coming home. I was crying. I was upset. And I told my husband, Mark, and he said, you've got to let your manager know. You've got to let your manager know. I said, no, no way. The shame of even admitting I am not coping was too much for me to bear. I couldn't even tell my manager. And in the end, my husband, who's a lovely man, said, <laughs> his foot was down, you are telling your manager. <laughs> you are telling your manager. So thank God I got Mark there because I tried to think what would have happened. And I was that scared of admitting that I wasn't coping that I had to email my manager. And, you know, I'm at work and Mark's saying, have you emailed them yet? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've emailed them. Another hour later, have you had a response yet, Carol? No. Like all day when when I'd clearly said, I am stressed. I am stressed. And it took, I think it was the next day. Yeah, the next day my manager like just said, Oh yeah, you know, how's everything? I'm like, I'm not coping. You know, I'm really not coping. What led you to that? What were you not coping with? Do you know you said it was a little bit insidious and I recognise absolutely. Do you know when you said that you noticed that your compassion had gone? And what's interesting there is that even at the beginning of this podcast, and bearing in mind you're not sat in front of a service user, your exuberance and um, real belief in change was absolutely clear for everybody to see if they're watching or hear if they're listening. It was really there. Then when you've started talking about your own personal story, You've said that actually one of the biggest red flags for you is the fact that the compassion had gone from you. Yeah, absolutely. There was me just not wanting to, I want to say not wanting to care, but the compassion had gone because I just could not cope with the overwhelm. So I'd say say I had 50 cases, 55 cases. I might go into work one day and say so-and-so's off on sick. No wonder, you know, I should have been off on sick. So then suddenly you've got all of their cases. And we're talking about people who are are in situations that are high risk, even though officially they weren't high risk. And that's why they were with the community rehabilitation companies. But as we all know, the domestic violence situations can change like that. So 
the stress levels were just constantly like that because these people were still living with their partners, still seeing children, and the worry that something would go wrong when you've got 50 people on your caseload just became too much to bear. And a way of coping was just to shut down, like, I don't care, literally just to shut down and grin and bear it and get through. So, I, I, yeah, it was insidious. And I did start to just see my behavior decline. Well, I was in, I can tell lots of stories of how I just was not coping. I was in a meeting with a service user and his children's social worker. And she was really trying to get him to see, you know, I do want you to see your children. You've got to work with me. That's all she was saying. And my guy who was, he got temper control issues and his emotional regulation was poor. So, you know, he's like this. And I remember just saying, oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. I've just remembered something. I've got to go. I'm so sorry. While he's in the middle of like screaming and shouting, I said, I'm so sorry. I've got to go. I've got to go. And I calmly, all my acting skills, I calmly got up, walked out and just went into the toilet and was like screaming in the toilet. It's terrible. In my head, that was the choice. Either start to scream at this guy saying, don't talk to her like a piece of poo or get out of there. It was the fight or flight. And I thought, get out, just get out. Yes, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Yes. So like walking around like a Stepford wife. I'm absolutely fine. I'm okay. It wasn't even masking, it's totally denying my feelings because I didn't want to admit that I wasn't coping. In a situation, so the same situation, because actually practitioners within probation and other services will find themselves in that situation regularly where they're trying to be that person that bridges that understanding between professional services and service users. And numerous times I can remember I've been in very similar situations When your emotional resilience was at a level that you were coping, you were reasonably happy within your work and you had that compassion. So it's like, how would you have responded in that situation, do you think? If I'd have had a good relationship with the service user, me be me, I would have definitely said, come on, John, she's here to help. We're all here to help. Do you want to take five? Do you want to just speak to me? You know, she's here to help then would have said to Jane, Jane, do you want to just give us five minutes? And then I would have worked with him on my own to calm him down. And I've done that loads of times with people before, you know, gone to child protection meetings with them and said, look, you know, role played with them before. And look, you are going to get mad. They are going to say this. They are going to say that. Let's work through it. Let's just work on keeping you as calm as we can do. If it was somebody who that wouldn't have worked, I would have still like said, should we take a break? you know, is this the right time for us to be having this discussion? And like, what's going on, John? Why? But I just couldn't. I had to get out of there. And that was right at the end. I'm like, yeah, Carol, you need to leave. Yeah. And that sounds like a really difficult situation, but it sounds like a situation that, as we've both said, it is a regular occurrence. Yes, always a difficult situation, but it's a regular occurrence. And you had the innate skills to deal with it. You've done that many times before. Mm. But in this circumstance, because you were struggling yourself personally, Mm -hmm. feeling overworked, under pressure, lacked compassion for potentially his confusion and his fury at the situation as well. Yeah, understandably Um, so. I mean, all the time you can see, why wouldn't you be mad at the social worker? They're denying you access to your children. Any of us would be mad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And particularly if you don't understand the reasons why they're doing that or agree with the reasons. Do you know, it it brings that emotion. I can see why for you, it made you recognise that actually you were at the end of your kind of... Absolutely. Yeah. I fleed. It was that or freeze or fight. (laughs) I thought I've got to flee. (laughs) In that situation, I think you probably chose the lesser of three difficulties. But again, it could have been worse in the sense of the risk to that social worker, for instance. No, exactly. Yeah. And it's looking back on those moments when we've made those decisions that actually, going back to what you said at the beginning, if we can recognise and we can identify and see those signs and symptoms in ourselves, hopefully we can avoid getting to that stage because that's what we want to do. Absolutely. Allow. See, I'm doing it again and blaming myself, allowing myself to get to that stage. For whatever reason, I got to that stage and... I can see now at that point, but hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> if, we could, <laughs> if we could just help any listeners out there, if they're 
having those initial feelings of yeah I really wanted to lose my temper there or yeah I really wanted to run off there whatever your fight or flight response is or yeah you know I'm dreading going into work in the morning listen they're the signs absolutely listen like hello I'm in a joke about it now but all the time my body was telling me and I'm just saying go away I'm ignoring you you know I'd come down with everything going I'd get cold sores one week cold the week after so start is the week after that you know there was always something a matter with me my immune system was just non-existent but again ignore it it's just normal that's all of us are stressed out and it's not normal it's not just because everybody else is stressed and it becomes normal that isn't normal so that's culturally a problem yeah Yeah. exactly and what that links really clearly to is when you went oh I'm doing it again I'm blaming myself but actually it's that context and that culture of everybody's stress it's normal you know everybody else is overworked under pressure everybody else is trying to do this and trying to catch up with it yeah and everybody else is taking their work home with them and it's causing them to snap at their children or to not do things on the weekend with their family like they were going to because they've got to get this done and we don't realize that those bubbles you know that's preparing to boil and when it boils it's really, really hard to come back from that. And I would say huge credit to your husband, Mark, for being the one yeah. that kind of kept banging on and saying, because it's a sign in itself that you were that nervous to tell your manager. Yeah. Because yeah. I can honestly say that I really want people to come and talk to me at that first stage because I can help them and do something about it then. Yeah. But if they're at the stage where they're leaving potentially their colleagues in a risky situation and not managing to deal with that, then it's getting to too late. Yeah, absolutely too late. And you can see, you know, hindsight, I can see then, oh, that day I was driving home and I thought, oh God, I need a drink and went and got a bottle of wine. You know, I'm not a big drinker. They're they're the signs. I am not coping, but I just kept ignoring it. It'll be fine. You know, ever the optimist. (laughs) (laughs) You know, come on, everything will be fine. That's like toxic optimism because you've got to be a realist as well now and again, haven't you? And actually, if you are dreading going into work, ending the day feeling absolutely shattered, ending the day wanting to go and have a drink, then that's a problem. And in an ideal world, you would be comfortable to open up to your manager. You know, if everybody had a lovely manager like you, you'd say, right, for whatever reason, I'm struggling. And then you'd be there to help them in the environment where that's not encouraged or there'll be consequences say on your sick record then of course people are going to be reluctant to admit and I've seen it myself so when I left probation proper as a probation officer in 2017 I was a mentor for two years for the National Probation Service and of course you know I got a bit of a crusade on to again rescue everybody so as soon as I saw managers being not 100% right with my mentees, you know, (laughs) I really feel strongly about it. And I could totally see how the manager was making the mentee feel. And again, the mentees putting it all on themselves. And I'm there saying, well, hang on a minute. That's an unrealistic demand that the manager's putting on you. You can say no. But they say, oh, no. And the manager will then think I'm this and this. And I totally get it because that was me. Oh, no. If I say no to that, then my teammates will have to do it. And then, oh, just encouraging this overworked, overstressed, overanxious, just not good for employees' well-being. And then you put them on a training saying, be more resilient. It's like, hang on a minute. Doesn't quite work like that. (laughs) Go and have a bubble bath. Have you seen what I've had to put up with today? What? (laughs) I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services. Services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive. And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this 
the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So Training for Influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. I think you give some really good examples there about actually how difficult it is for people to go and talk to their managers. I guess what I would add to that is I've had the either fortune or misfortune, depends how you look at it, of being a service user, being a frontline worker, and then going through to going into management and then into more strategic roles within management. And I can say at every level, I thought that the next level would be better, easier, less stressful, etc., it isn't. It's just <laughs> as stressful, just very different. And I think as a manager, one of the responsibilities certainly is you're getting all of that stress yourself. And the easiest thing to do is pass that stress on to the rest of your team. But actually, the most effective thing to do is to recognize and to be able to support your team, to be able to have that open culture of support. And you role model that as well to say, we need to be doing this together and have that open relationship where you're contacting the employee assistant program and you're telling people that or you're taking time at the beginning of your handover session to say, let's check in how we all are today. Oh my gosh, you know, actually I'm struggling with my sleep. You're role modeling the fact that none of us need to be perfect. We are human beings. And it's funny because the more open we are about it, managers quite often get fearful that if they open that box, then actually everybody will go, oh, I can't cope, I can't cope, and they'll run off and they'll all be sick. Mm. But actually, it does the exact opposite in my experience. Mm. People lean in and support each other, and then you grow and develop as a team, and you become a formidable team that actually can manage because you're looking out for each other. And when one of you is struggling, another one isn't. And so you're helping each other out in that way. And that's what grows that culture of being able to share when you're struggling. Um, it's so important. You know, when you're working in situations that are inherent, you know, you're hearing and seeing distressing things and you need that support from your colleagues and you need that support from your manager. And if everybody else is stressed, including your manager, the team can't thrive. They just can't. You have to work as a team when you're a frontline worker. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't any eruption really with it. Not if you want to be able to do it effectively and safely. The other thing that for me, which is quite crushing when your emotional resilience is low, is that most people like you go into these type of roles, working with people with complex needs or vulnerabilities because they want to make a difference. Mm. And the sad fact is that when our resilience is low personally, because we're humans and we have families and we have complexities and there's pressure coming from our personal lives as well as our professional lives. The sad fact is that when our resilience is low, actually the service we deliver, even if we think it's a good service, is not the best service that it can be. And your example is a perfect example of that because that service user, in the nicest possible way, Carol, deserved Carol on her A-game who, oh, could, who could mediate between yeah. him and the social worker to help them get the best solution yeah. possible. And he didn't get that that day. No. And that could, may have influenced whether he got to see his children. And then we all know, we all know what the impact is of parents seeing or not seeing their children, et cetera. But, you know, in that moment, and not from any perspective, from a guilt perspective at all, but from a recognition perspective, that frontline professionals every single day are in positions that may or may not look like, but are life altering positions. Mm. And it's with that kind of context that it really infuriates me that there isn't more given to frontline professionals to actually help them be the best that they can possibly yeah. be. Yeah. Like you say, you know, you're making decisions that will totally impact on somebody's life. You're making a decision whether to recall somebody or not. That's totally impacting on somebody's life. If you are not on your A game, you might make mistakes, meaning somebody could get hurt in the community because you've just taken your foot off the accelerator and not noticed that somebody's come in and is telling you X, Y and Z and you're just too busy not listening to that. And then they go out and do X, Y and Z. You need to be on your A game. It is 
not to overstate the matter, life or death, it's the difference between somebody going and stabbing somebody to death or not by you actually being able to show up fully. Yeah. yeah, more should be done. There should be clinical supervision, much more. They should be spending so much more money on actually supporting staff, not, not do paperwork, do the actual job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. not to say some paperwork isn't important. Do we, yeah. <laughs> but equally, from an emotional resilience perspective, things start to slip, don't they? When we're struggling, mm. things start to slip. And the sad fact is that if I'm really honest, within the sectors, I've seen this get worse and worse Mm -hmm. over kind of recent years. And in fact, the whole reason why the Trading for Influence methodology exists is because it's what I call a creative solution Mm -hmm. to the fact that back way back when, 20 years ago, I remember when I was working in the prison service, going on a week's long training about emotional resilience and such like, and being put up in a hotel and forming Norman Storming and then performing with my treatment team because I was part of a treatment team. And I remember all of that. And I remember how important that was. And I was just out of university and I needed that. And I needed that whole week of those 60-year-olds saying to me, oh my gosh, and these are the mistakes I made. And those other 20-year-olds going, we're going to save the world. And then (laughs) the people in the middle that kind of went, whoa, 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 let's have a look at this from a realistic perspective. And I'd love that to still be happening. And I guess in some places it, it might still be. But realistically, in the sectors that Tay Training delivers training for, that is not our experience. And certainly as I've then moved through my career, that's become less and less the experience. And to an extent, it's what's led to the methodology looking like it does, because we started off by actually working out how can we inject into something that frontline workers have to do. So nobody can say they're not doing them. They have to do them. It's legislated. It's mandated by quality assurers. There's certain training courses that they have to do. How can we inject in those elements of emotional resilience, start trying to influence and impact that culture of openness and that values-based decision and helping people recognize exactly what you've said, the power that's in your hands, whether you recognize it or not every day. And I would argue that as frontline workers, none of us recognize it every day because there's days we're just turning up to work to an extent. Mm. So whether you recognize it or not, the power in your hands is immense. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I delivered some training once and it stuck in my head because I was gobsmacked that somebody would say such a thing. A probation officer said, well, we haven't got any power. And my jaw must have just dropped on the floor. Like, wow. And this is a problem. Like, how, what? You don't, you've literally got somebody's like license there that you can recall and you, you don't recognize that. And we did do some work with him in the training. But yeah, to have got through how many years and actually genuinely believed that you had no power. And the power and influence on everybody's life that recalled or not recalled person has as well. From a frontline perspective, and quite often I find myself reminding charity workers of the same thing. Do you know people who work in homeless services or domestic abuse services and they're like, oh, yeah, but we look down on because we're third sector. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. The power that is in your hands to help somebody transform their life, be what they need at that moment in time is absolutely immense. Irrelevant of some of the frustrations of the kind of austerity measures, political landscape, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I spent half my life championing trying to change some of that strategic stuff. But actually, we can't just look to the strategy. We have to look at the lives that we're all touching every day. And as a trainer, when you're delivering that training, you're influencing those delegates who are then going out and working with those service users. That power is really immense and we have to, in a way, not only recognize it, but also protect it. And us having emotional resilience is one of the key ways of doing that. It really is. If you are chronically stressed and your resilience is out of the window, yeah, you can't do your job properly and you will be, well, at worst, you are causing harm because you are not supporting that person fully and missing things. But again, it's not the individual. (laughs) I I don't want it to sound like I totally believe in individualistic responsibility. However, the book does stop with you and you are in an organisation where things go wrong. It's you. You have missed it. So it's so important 
if you aren't coping, when you notice those signs to speak up and say something, because otherwise, if something goes wrong and you say, well, I've been stressed for the last four weeks, all the organisation has to say is, well, you never told us. And then lo and behold, any serious incident just looks like the practitioner. It was all their fault. Not that we're into yeah. the blame game, but it does yeah. end up like that. Yeah. You have I think to it, speak up. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we talk about responsibility here and there absolutely is an organisation's responsibility yeah. to ensure that there are different support mechanisms. So different organisations will have different processes with regards to whether there is clinical supervision, whether there is supervision with the managers, how often that happens, whether there's an employee assistance programme, and importantly, the culture within that organisation. And so an organisation absolutely has responsibilities for your well-being as an employee, as much as to enable you to be able to undertake the objectives of the organisation. But equally, there's no getting away from there absolutely is some personal responsibility in this because you talked earlier about the fact that you got really good at masking things. Well, do you know, you're you're a trained actress, Carol. Mm. It it may be a case that actually your manager, until you sent that email, had no clue. Yeah, I don't Um, think he did. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think he did. So what do you, I guess, from a personal responsibility perspective, what are some of the things that you do now that kind of help keep you balanced and looking after your own well-being? Well, at the minute, it's ensuring that you take stock of how you're feeling and don't ignore those feelings or the telltale signs and make sure that you speak up. There's one thing I would want listeners to take away from this is to ask for help. That's the right and proper thing to do to keep your line manager and your team updated about how you're feeling and how you are. And stuff like for some people, things are going off at home. So and how is that impacting on you and how you're showing up every day? So for me, it's about being honest about your feelings for me, if I'm tempted to mask now, that's a massive warning sign for me. Yeah, because if you I, should be able to be your true self. Exactly. So if I'm wanting to mask, I can ask myself, what is this about? So that's for me. I notice now if it's kicking off that fight or flight response, what's this about? And not ignoring it, which is yeah. what I was basically, I was just basically invalidating my own feelings by just thinking I was overreacting. Oh, everybody gets stressed, Carol. Just trying to reason with myself instead of saying, hang on a minute, this isn't right. So I would notice now and say, this is triggering me and I don't know why, but it is. Yeah. A bit like when I was doing the training and I mean, you were lovely, Tammy, and, but even that took a lot for me. It still takes a lot for me to say, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with that or I'm not coping with that. It's still quite a pride thing. So if anybody out there feels like I did, you have to seek up even more, even more. And remember that you're worth it as well. You deserve to enjoy your job. You deserve to want to go to work. It's only when you're at that level and you're feeling that that you're doing the best that you possibly can. It would be great to think that all of the culture change, everybody will have brilliant managers and everybody will think, right, OK, I've listened to Carol and Tammy's podcast and I'm going to speak up about this. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully some people absolutely will. But we also know that there'll be some other people who, because of who their managers are or because of their own personal barriers, still won't go and speak to their managers. And they will have that either that pride thing or the fear of repercussions or whatever mm-hmm. it is. In those circumstances, I'd say, so I agree with you. My first thing is, if in any way we can persuade you to go and talk to your manager or somebody else within the organization that can kind of support you in that way, absolutely, you are worth so much and you will be so much better at what you're doing if you then reach out for that help. But if the barriers are insurmountable, there are other things that you can be doing as well that will make things more manageable. Now, I know for me that I like to I like to plan in some really early nights. I like to read and I like to at the moment, particularly in um, restricted times, I like to go walk with my friends. Walking's good, yeah. And other people have different coping mechanisms. And I know that you like yoga, don't you, Carol? Yes. And I've just enrolled on my yoga teacher training, my 200 hours. So I'll be a certified yoga teacher. Well, 
I'm not setting any limits on it, but I'm sort of thinking by the summer, I will have done my 200 hours. <laughs> no pressure I, or anything. No, yeah, yeah. Are you going to invite all the uh, stressed probation officers to your yoga <laughs> sessions? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I will, yeah. Again, I want to save you all, but yoga is brilliant. And I mean, I can't wax lyrical enough about the benefits of yoga spiritually, emotionally, physically. It is just, well, it's been around for you know, a long time. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just say forever. Just a test. Um, I'll know the answer to that in six months. <laughs> it's been around before Christ, hasn't it? Forever. Yeah. It works. It yeah. really does work. It's finding out what works for you, isn't it? Because some people go to the gym, some people eat cake, some people read books, some people... People drink bottles of wine, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, but that's when it becomes something that's unhealthy. And that's exactly what you said earlier, a sign. Do you know, yeah, the odd is. glass of wine every now and again is absolutely fine, as we all know. But actually, if you're getting to the end of the day going, I need a glass of wine. Yeah, that's a difference. A different, there is a big difference there, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's and not a productive coping mechanism, is it? Not not like yoga or it's not going exciting. to the gym and <laughs> yeah. or going to boxer size and boxing or even yeah, <laughs> even just ringing up a friend and yeah. talking and look out as well for your colleagues because if your manager is somebody that isn't approachable. Ideally, you will then look for another manager that is approachable or look within the realms of the line management. But if your manager is somebody that isn't approachable, I can bet money on the fact that some of your colleagues will be feeling that too. So look for your colleagues because you can support each other. And I've worked in many a team where the team has got me through the day's work, the week's work, the sector or the objectives that we're working to. The fact that I've got a brilliant team around me has made the what I think is unachievable absolutely achievable so we can't underestimate the power of the team as well definitely not no and even more important if you're working from home to make sure you're ringing up your colleagues and speaking to somebody because yeah if you're having to deal with some really heartbreaking stories from people where are you going after that call where are you going after you spoke to that social worker what are you doing to look after yourself once you've you know listened to something that can be quite considered traumatic what are you doing to look after yourself have your colleagues to speak to or your manager yeah you just need to be able to let off that steam and get it out of your system whatever you've seen or heard yeah and even if you think it hasn't impacted you like we said at the beginning you can take on subconsciously talking about kind of vicarious burnout and such like we can kind of continue along our work in life and just keep going and just keep going and just keep going and thinking, I'm dealing with that, I'm dealing with that, I'm dealing with that, and not actually recognising the impact that it's having on us. Years ago, I wrote a, I was going to say PSR, that's going back in time. I wrote a report for court and I won't go into details, but at the time I was so pleased that I was doing it and not the mothers. So I won't say what it was, but anyway, I thought, oh, I can handle it because I'm not a mum, I'm still not a mum you know and I think thank god the other mothers didn't get this it's heartbreaking you know oh my god oh my god but looking back I mean this is like 10 years ago I wrote this report and looking back I can remember going on and on and on about it to everybody that's one of my warning signs like when you can't let it go so I'll be talking about it to you and you and you and you like a broken record I kept going on and on about it and I can see that now and again that meant I wasn't coping with it but in my head oh, it's fine because I'm not a mom, so it doesn't bother me. It clearly did. So it's about recognising that, go and get help. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying, just because you're in the job and you sign up for it doesn't mean you have to put up with everything and anything. You, you're you a human being, you're not a robot. You yeah. do need support and you do need to let off steam. And there's a reason why robots are not on the front line, because actually <laughs> it's human relationships that make change. So Absolutely, yeah. Oh, Carol, I've really, I've loved talking to you today. I always enjoy talking to you, but it's great as well that we've we've recorded it and we'll we'll share with the world. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with the listeners? Please look after yourself. Please, you know, be kind to yourself and recognise what a good job that you do. So even on the days where it just feels like one crisis after another, just take stock of what good you have done that day and you will have done 
you will have done even if it is something like I listened to that person and validated their feelings just cling on to that cling on to it brilliant thank you so much Carol loads and loads of kind of advice support guidance and lessons for people as well because one of the reasons why we're doing this is hopefully people will listen and they'll go oh Carol's just said something that's touched a nerve I think I just need to go and find out a little bit more about this or I need to get that support or I need to be rebalancing my life a little bit yeah that'd be brilliant if anybody listened and thought right and I prevented them getting to that stage I'd be happy (laughs) (laughs) brilliant so Carol just before we sign off you've talked about the fact that you've had this long career within probation service and then talked about the fact that you were an actress before that but you're up to some exciting things at the moment and it'd be great if you could just tell the listeners where they can find out more about you I am yes so all my skills experiences certificates everything has led me to this point where I support and help people to get confident with their public speaking. So I've been helping people in a variety of industries. I help people to speak confidently on stage and I help people craft their story so that they know what to say. And I love it. And all my experiences as an actress and being on stage and knowing how to make yourself feel very relaxed on stage and all of my training as a probation officer and having to speak in court and having to speak at parole board hearings and all lots of scary, scary things has just meant I've got this privileged position where I can really help people with their confidence when they're about to deliver a speech on stage. So that's why uh, this is going to be the least edited podcast we've ever had, because I think um, <laughs> 99.9.9% of what you've already said will make it into the podcast, which isn't usual, but you are very eloquent and confident. So I guess, yeah, you're showing all of the skills that you now teach other people. I guess I am. Yes, <laughs> yes. I am. So if but, you do want help, if you are thinking I'd never dare to on a podcast or I'd never dare to go on stage or I'd never dare to do a video conference or whatever it is then come to me for help I can help you there is where do they find you scared find me on LinkedIn which is Carol Plant or you can look on my website www.carolplant.co.uk Fantastic. I love the fact that you were clearly trying to remember the end of your website there. <laughs> Is it com or no? .co.uk. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Carol. And we'll pop all of that information in the show notes as well. So it's a little bit easier for people to click on it and find it as well. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.